0: Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this passage of Ephesians, we see three categories of blessings, and these three categories are oriented to time and tied to a person of the Trinity. You're listening to How Many Blessings by Guest Minister, Rev. John Obgenorth. Right. It's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, Some of you maybe were here in June when I preached, and uh, when Pastor Peter asked me to come back, I felt a great deal of self-confidence, like I was good enough to come back. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I had such a wonderful time then, and even tonight meeting people. We're going to come to Ephesians chapter 1 tonight. It is my absolute favorite text. It's the one that led me into ministry, talking about our call, talking about your call to ministry. There's always a text, it seems, that draws us in, and Ephesians 1 is mine for a number of reasons. Um, But let's pray as we dig in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let your Word be our rule, your Spirit our guide, and the glory of Jesus, our one concern, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is God's word to us uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be I wonder tonight how you would describe the telling of the blessings of God to us in Jesus. What is it like? Uh, Is it like the, the news you get or how you feel about telling others when the doctor says, you're now cancer free? The joy, the weight that is lifted. Is it like um, uh, Tom, Tom Keene does, does the morning show on Bloomberg Radio I listen to from Zeeland in the Grand Rapids every morning, Bloomberg Surveillance, and this last week the market's in its gyrations. He's so excited. It's an unending bull market. Is that what the, describing the blessings of God is like, a bull market that never ends? Uh, I tend to think of it like a child the first day back from Christmas vacation to announce to classmates the haul that he or she got on Christmas. I got an Oculus virtual reality headset. I got a Nintendo Switch or a Barbie RV or a new pony. Something that just is exuberant and joyful, a a never-ending string of presents and gifts they're so excited about. I, I think... I sense that's what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 1 to the church in Ephesus. He is excited, hyperventilating almost as he either writes it or dictates it to another who's crafting in ink what he is saying with his mouth. He can't get out the words fast enough. All of verses 3 through 10, for example, are one long sentence with no punctuation marks. He would not have done well in your class that you teach tomorrow morning. No periods, no commas, no semicolons. He's exuberant. How many blessings could you count in Ephesians 3 if you're following along? How many? You can name a few of them, I'm sure, but Paul says in Uh, in verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with how many blessings? Every spiritual blessing. How many is every blessing? If you were to count them, we maybe could have sang the old hymn, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. You could not stop counting. They would be as God's words to Abraham, as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sand on the sea. It's an infinite number. Would we not agree the blessings of God that are ours in Jesus? And tonight I'd like to suggest that though they are infinite they can be loosely categorized or maybe tightly categorized around three broad categories in Ephesians 1 that are connected by the grammatical words in him but also oriented around two other things. Oriented around time and tied to a person of the Trinity. I think it's there. I'd like to suggest it to us and have us explore it a little bit today. There are blessings oriented to the past connected to God the Father, blessings of the present, of our present connected to Jesus the Son, and blessings of the future connected to the Holy Spirit. The blessing of the Father is in the past. And in verse 4, you can see it show up. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in in His sight and in love he predestined us for adoption to himself through Christ according to the purpose of his will. As reformed people, we're a week away from the great day, aren't we? From Reformation celebrations and observances, and uh, it's easy to get focused and lost and and wrapped up in a key Reformation word or Calvinist understanding of predestination. In the text, we might uh, dis- discuss and describe it and wrestle with it and debate it, uh, and. And all of those things are very important. But I'd like to suggest and even argue tonight from the New Testament that the most important word in this blessing, our past blessings of God, is the word adoption. Adoption is a powerful legal term. Uh, Maybe some of you have experienced adoption of your own self or perhaps you engaged in adoption of a child in your life or someone in your life certainly has. There's all kinds of legal ramifications in terms of responsibility and parenthood and uh, legal things like inheritance that are tied up in that word. And yet so often in North America in the 21st century and 20th century, the word has always a little bit of awkwardness to it at times, like something is different about the individual. A, a child is adopted from a pregnancy that was a surprise or unexpected. A child can be adopted sometimes out of foster care out of a hard and difficult and challenging background or cross culturally from a challenging and difficult space in the world. It's wonderful and beautiful and emotional. And yet, some of the friends I've had who've experienced adoption often wondered about their identity. Who really am I? When Paul uses the word in the New Testament, however, it would be universally understood in the city of Ephesus in the first century the power and majesty of the word. I can guarantee you that the vast majority of the people in the hearing of this letter would have said yes and amen. Here's why. The ancient world, everything revolved around your status as a citizen. In the Roman world, Greco Roman world, Ephesus is in in Turkey, what is today Turkey, controlled by the Romans. In order to conduct commercial business legally, you needed to be a Roman citizen. In order to transfer property from one person to another, you needed to be a citizen. To pass on generational wealth to children or to the next in line, it would need to be citizen. It mattered. Everything. Fewer than one-third of all the people who lived in the Roman Empire were actually citizens. The vast majority were in some form of slavery, as many as a third to a half were actually in some form of slavery or indentured servitude to another human being. Others, like the Jewish people of Palestine, would have been sort of unrecognized non-citizens living under the rule of Rome, paying taxes and not receiving much in return. And you could become a citizen by one of three ways— You could be born a citizen. This was the Apostle Paul in Acts 22. He says he was born a citizen. You could could bribe your way into it as the guard who was with Paul in Acts 22 said. He paid a great sum for his citizenship. And Paul says he was born a citizen. Or you could be adopted. And this was not an uncommon thing Not entirely common, but not unheard of. A family without an heir would often adopt uh, someone who was a servant in their home or maybe someone in a position of slavery to be their child or to be in their family. Or if somebody in their family or in their, in their household was a wonderful servant who they wanted to bless and care about, they would, they would bring that person in and make them a formally adopted child who would then become a legal heir and a Roman citizen. Can you imagine in Ephesus how excited the people were to hear this description of God's love for them and Jesus? It's an incredible blessing. It says that God chose them and adopted them. In fact, the family relationship we often take for granted in our our, uh, relationship with the New Testament and with Christianity over the years and the decades of our lives. It just rolls off our tongue. But the idea of family relationship describing a person's connection to the Father is incredibly revolutionary in the New Testament. It doesn't show up in the Old Testament. You don't see it a great deal, if at all, except in metaphors. But when Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3 and a voice says to, from heaven, the voice says, "'This is my what? My son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased.'" And then when Jesus, a couple chapters later, Matthew 6, teaches the disciples to pray, what are the first words he says? Our ruler, our king, our father, right? In John chapter 1, the great prologue to the gospel of John, he talks about what it means that Jesus Christ became flesh. And he says, yet to all who received and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. Not slaves, not servants, not subjects. Children of God. In the letter that John writes, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, he says. It's powerful, isn't it? Romans chapter 8, Paul says we have received a spirit of adoption in which we call him Abba, Daddy, Father. Something unique is happening in the New Testament that did not exist in the Old Testament, but because of Jesus Christ, the reality of God choosing us in him before the foundation of the world is settled. What this means for every single one of us, whether we've had great experiences in our families or difficult experiences in our families, our primary identity comes as a child of the living God. Can I get an amen in this place tonight? Amen. This means we can walk through life with an assurance and a calmness to know what's my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong. I have a place, I belong, I have an identity. And I'd like to suggest to the world in which we live where identity is such a huge part of the various crises facing us that if people understood their identity first as a child of the living God, we'd have far fewer discussions, debates, and animosities. Whether it be identity politics or identity issues about race, political party, even the the myriad of tormented questions about gender identity and all kinds of identities in our world. What the church has to offer the world is you can know your true self in Jesus because God chose to adopt you before the foundation of the world. This is our past blessing tied to the Father. There's present blessings tied to Jesus, and we see those beginning really in about verse 7. In Him, we have two things, redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins according to the riches of His grace. Redemption and forgiveness are also words that just kind of roll off our, our tongues as as followers of jesus uh, redemption how do we use that in in contemporary parlance Um, my mom had a stack of coupons to take to the store or or today because of meyer rewards in my app every month they send me a little booklet of coupons do you get the little booklet of coupons and it's worth 50 cents off that or a dollar off of this and 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 the value of that coupon is one dollar but it's only valuable if it is redeemed, we say, right? So you bring it to the store, you redeem it, you get a, a dollar off. Redemption is a biblical word that begins in Exodus with the redemption of God's people from the house of slavery, from the land of bondage. The price of their redemption was the blood of the Passover lamb on top of the doorframe of the houses and the angel of death passed over them. Redemption for us is the blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross, and it says the debt has been paid in full. The best analogy I can think of in our world would be someone who is a convicted felon who's in prison and is there until either the time is served or the Or the fine is paid, and for them to be redeemed from that moment, the time has to be given 10 years in prison, or uh, the the fine paid, or in some cases, both. And what we have in Jesus Christ is that the full penalty and wages of our sin is death and it has been paid in full. We are no longer under the curse. No scheme of hell or power of a human being can keep us down. Jesus Christ has paid for it with his blood. Forgiveness is the other side of that coin. Forgiveness says not only is the debt paid But the record, the the sin is expunged for our record. Uh, If you ever have to fill out a job application, they'll always ask you this little question, won't they? Have you ever been convicted of a felony? That convicted felon might be out of prison because their debt is paid or their time is served, but it still follows them. What forgiveness says, it's no longer there. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, when God the Father looks at you, his beloved daughter and his beloved son, he doesn't see your sin. It's been expunged from the record. In the cancel culture of today, who has not done something that they would be terribly embarrassed if the world knew what you sent in an email once? Or what you had said that you thought was private but now is exposed. When we bring ourselves to the cross, our debt is paid. Our sin is expunged from the record. Doesn't that make you hyperventilate with praise? And our third blessings are oriented to the future and tied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, there's the word again, according to purpose of him who works out all things to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You're a trust fund kid. (laughs) Um, There's a great line in the musical Hamilton. Aaron Burr is trying to meet up with the Schuyler sisters on the streets of New York and he sings the line, You can trust me, baby, I'm a trust fund baby. (laughs) He didn't end so well in his life. But in essence, what Scripture is telling us is that we right now know that our inheritance is so great in the Holy Spirit. How many blessings are there in Christ? An infinite number of blessings. It's simply somewhat unbelievable certainly unfathomable what we have been given in Christ when you think of inheritance in a in a temporal sense inheritance is usually finite even if someone leaves a parent dies and leaves property to their child it's a great sum certainly but it's a finite sum i pastored for 18 years in northwest iowa and farmers when they passed away left the land to the kids And if they had 1,000 acres and five children, each child would get how many acres? 200. I haven't done the math today. I I changed my illustration, so I don't know what the math is on this. But at some years, the the land is worth 20,000 an acre. So 20,000 times 200 acres is what? 4 million or 400,000? Someone do the math quick for me, right? It's a f- big number, but it's finite. Now, if mom and dad adopt a sixth child, what happens to that 1,000 acres? It's not divided by five, it's divided by six. And six into 1,000 is a little bit less than five into 1,000. You can imagine the kids might start to get a little anxious if towards the end of life, mom and dad start to adopt a bunch of kids. But what happens if the Father's inheritance is infinite? Changes the story, doesn't it? This is why uh, Pastor Tim Keller, a uh, Presbyterian pastor in Manhattan, New York, When he talks about the father who had two sons in Luke 15, the younger son took daddy's inheritance while dad was still living, went off, came back, repented, tried to be a servant in daddy's house. And dad gives him what? A robe, a ring, sandals for his feet, and a fattened calf to celebrate with the community, right? And then there's this great scene where the older son is mad. And he's not coming in and he's stewing in the field and the dad goes out to the son and the son says, I've been slaving for you all these years and you've never given me even a little goat to celebrate with my friends and this son of yours. When he comes back, you do all this stuff for him. And the dad has the seminal line, doesn't he? All I have is yours. And Tim Keller makes the point, that's exactly why he was mad. Whose robe did he give to the son? The older son's. Whose ring would it have been if dad died? The older son's. Whose sandals were they? Whose calf was it? It belonged to the older son. He was seeing his inheritance dwindle away because he saw his father's goodness as a finite gift that was limited instead of an infinite gift that could not be numbered. And Jesus in that moment is saying to the scribes and the, and the Pharisees who were grumbling about who Jesus was welcoming into the kingdom, he tells the parable for them to say, this is the kind of older brother you are. You don't like the, the, the sinner and the outcast and the prostitutes coming in because somehow you're, you're like the brother who thinks God's gifts and, and mercies are finite. And in telling the parable I think Jesus is saying to us that He is the true elder brother. He doesn't wait for the younger sons and daughters like us to come back from the pig farmer's uh, slop to be, seek redemption. He runs to us. He comes to the pigsty of the earth. He puts himself on the cross. That I see in creed, which was in one just after one of the hymns that we sang today, says, "For us and for our salvation." He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. He died for us. He rose again from us. He invites us into his family. And Paul says in Romans 8, we have become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is a gift to us to remind us every day that we are trust fund kids of a God with an eternal amount of blessings. And you might wonder, how does all of this impact my life tomorrow morning when I get up and go to work or get up and go about my week? I think at least in these ways. First, we can walk into tomorrow with a quiet confidence because we know who we are and whose we are. Second, as we walk through the day and encounter other people who are sinners like us, we can begin to look at them as the Heavenly Father looks at them. I believe that forgiven people will forgive people. You can treat your foes and your enemies in a whole different way if you understand what it means that you are forgiven. And with our inheritance, I think sometimes as Christians, particularly those of us, and I count myself one, a strong Calvinist with a stiff upper lip, I can be a little conservative in the things that I don't risk for. I think because we're serving a God of infinite blessing, we can risk a little bit more, whether it be in opportunities for ministry or mission or in resourcing and gifting or whether it be in taking chances as a church on people that you don't know how it's going to turn out. The Father's blessings are infinite. In our grace and love and concern and passion for the world, we can love in a whole new way when we know that, we're, that we're, we cannot fail that our Father's blessings and love cannot run out. I hope as you tell the story of God's blessing in your life, Like Paul, we could all hyperventilate a little bit with how good God is. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Father, come now and seal your word in our heart that we might live for you with courage and joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's sermon podcast.